you again, Alan, for leading us and for the team, as I said earlier, do such a fine job week by week leading us in worship. A few years ago now, Diana and I had the opportunity to travel with uh, Ryan Smith from GIA and a couple of other pastors through parts of Southeast Asia, specifically through Thailand and then Cambodia. And on the way home, we said to Ryan, would it be all right if we stopped in Singapore, just the two of us, uh, Diana and myself, for a few days, which we did. And Singapore was a fascinating stopover for a couple of days. One of my lasting impressions of Singapore was that it's just one big shopping centre. And the only problem with the shopping centre is the clothes are all designed for people of Singapore build, not my kind of build. But one of the other things that uh, was of great interest to me in visiting Singapore was the fact that Singapore was one of the very important theatres of war for Australian soldiers during World War II. And a significant defeat took place at Singapore. You see, Singapore was understood by the British to be the great outpost of the British colonial administration, an impregnable fortress, they said. And so as the sabres were being rattled in Europe and then as the Japanese were uh, displaying their aggression through, uh, through Asia, the, the Brits uh, increased their defensive positions in Singapore, although would have admitted themselves that they were inadequate. But the problem was their defences were all aimed to sea, which is where they expected any potential invasion from the aggressive Japanese army to come from they thought they would be facing a seaborne invasion if an invasion was to come. But unfortunately, no one told the Japanese high command that. And the Japanese high command strategically uh, thought to themselves, we could do this by land across the Malayan Peninsula. Now, if you use your imagination for a minute, you can imagine Thailand and Malaya, that long strip of land which terminates there in Singapore, not far from Indonesia, uh, a thick uh, jungle impassable the British said no army would ever be able to transit through this impassable dense jungle with all of the treachery that is associated with jungle no one told the Japanese that either and so the Japanese using uh, bicycle infantry and light tanks made their way down that Malayan Peninsula and so were able to attack and take Singapore from the north uh, not from the south as the British had anticipated. This morning we're going to have a look at Joshua chapter 5 and the start of Joshua chapter 5 has uh, a statement that, uh, that, I, that called to mind that story. I'm going to actually work my way through the text and we've got the text on the screen uh, which is not what you're seeing there right now. <laughs> I'm not sure which Bible passage that actually comes from, <laughs> to tell you the honest truth. Uh, but the text of Joshua chapter 5, we're going to have a look at this and I'll uh, reflect on the text as we go through. The first verse is a rather interesting one and it says this, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard about the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they'd crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Now put yourself in the sandals, if you like, of the Canaanite and Amorite kings to the west of the Jordan. 
You see, up until the events of Joshua chapter 3, it's quite possible that they, they had a kind of a sense of security about what was happening. They'd seen what was going on on the plains to the east of the Jordan. They'd seen these Israelites moving along there, but they figured, I suspect, that at least for a short period of time, they were safe. Because between where they were on the west and where Israel was on the east was the Jordan River. And the Jordan River was at flood stage, right? There was no way, at least in the short term, these Israelites were going to make their way across to where they were. They had some protection for some time. There would be time, perhaps a couple of months, to fortify the defences, to uh, strengthen the defences of their cities, to better equip their soldiers, and, and let's face it, they actually, the Canaanites, the Amorites, had well-fortified cities, they had better equipment than the Israelites, and they actually had quite a lot more soldiers. But then, in Joshua chapter 3, a chapter that Matt reflected on a couple of weeks ago, uh, something that defied explanation took place. They watched as these Israelites crossed this Jordan River, this impregnable barrier, on dry ground no less. And their natural defences were overcome. It was very hard to argue with the supernatural nature of the crossing too. You see, the British would have said, well, the Japanese just used superior military strategy. This was not superior military strategy on the part of Israel. This was a direct intervention of God. The Israelites were able to cross on dry ground. Something miraculous happened. Incontestable proof that the God of Israel was fighting for them. And it says there in the passage, verse 1, their hearts melted. Their hearts melted. What an interesting phrase that is. Their hearts melted. Ever experienced a melting of your heart? It's a phrase we might use from time to time in our context, but it's not usually in the context of fear or anxiety, is it? If I was, for example, to bring with me, I haven't got a box here this morning, but if I brought a box, box in it and had a beautiful little puppy in it and I lifted before you that little puppy, what would happen to your heart? Ah, oh, as a collective, isn't that cute? Well, it is until you've got to look after it. But, uh, yeah, you know, we see a little puppy, our hearts melt. Don't take your children or your grandchildren uh, to, well, in those days, you know, the pet shops would have puppies in the front window because what happens, oh, I want a puppy, can I take the puppy? You know, the hearts melt. Our hearts might melt uh, when we see uh, a newborn baby or hear the tearful apology of a child, but that's not what these Canaanites and Amorites were experiencing, was it? They were not going, oh, look at those Israelites, aren't they? You know, it was the opposite. They were stricken with fear. They were absolutely mortified by what had happened. Their hearts were melted. But here's the paradox, and actually here's a paradox too that we experience. Their hearts were melted with fear, but what happens after that? Their hearts were hardened. Here was an opportunity, funnily enough, for them to look at an event, to see God's hand at work and say, wow, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a powerful God. He is at work. We could repent. We could embrace this. But they didn't. Their hearts hardened. It tells us at the start of the next chapter, we'll come to next week, uh, Jericho was locked up tight. They hardened their hearts. And we shouldn't be too tough on them though, because if we're honest, I think a lot of us 
actually behave just like them sometimes. Uh, people in our world do just what they do. I've actually seen this up close and personal. Uh, I'm thinking in contexts where I've conducted a funeral when someone, a loved family member, has passed away. For a season, for a window of time, there's sometimes there's a melting of the heart in some people. For a very brief moment in life, they're suddenly forced into a place of reflecting on eternity. What is life really all about? What is life really all about? What does eternity look like? Where do I sit in relationship with God? And then life gets back to normal and hearts harden up again and they're closed to the things of God. And the Israelites suffered from this malaise themselves time and time again, so much so that the author of the book of Hebrews picked this up and said, you know what, Uh, I think there's something that you might learn from here. This is what the author of the book of Hebrews said. We'll see if we can get there. Uh, As the Spirit says, this was a message uh, for those who received this uh, in those days back when this was written for us today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. It's a strong warning, isn't it? A warning against hardening our hearts. A warning against seeing the things and activity of God which the Israelites saw, which the Canaanites and the Amorites saw. And though their hearts were melted at one time, their hearts were hardened again. Well, in the context of the passage as the Amorites and Canaanites were paralysed with fear. We discover in verse 2 that God does something totally out of left field. A couple of passages here. I'm wondering if those of you at the back, are you able to read the second section, the smaller text? You are. That's a shame because I was going to encourage you to sit towards the front next week if you couldn't (laughs) fill up the front seats. At that time, this is in the context of the Amorites and Canaanites, Uh, with melted hearts at that time the Lord said to Joshua make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth and then in verses 4 through to 8 this is explained now this is why he did so all those who came out of Egypt all the men of military age died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. There's actually a strong uh, evidence, if you like, that God is good to his word. He said, I will judge those who disobey. And those who disobeyed at the start of those 40 years were judged. And we shouldn't ever lose sight of this characteristic of God. He is a God who judges. But here's the good news. In this verse, in the Old Testament, in a place that we don't normally go looking for grace, here is the grace. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors 
ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey, the judgment. So he raised up, in, uh, raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. There's the grace. God judged the disobedient, but he raised up in grace a new generation. They were still uncircumcised because they'd not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained there and they were in camp until they were healed. Now, if you're reading that passage for the first time without any understanding of who God is, or without any understanding of the context, you would have to say this is one of the most ridiculous things that God could possibly have ever done. Really. What is going on? It's crazy. Why would God lead his people miraculously through that river with the cities of the Canaanites and the Amorites, well fortified, good military people, why would he lead his people right into their laps, so to speak, right into their presence, as close as I am to you, metaphorically, and then incapacitate them so that they couldn't fight? Why would God do a thing like that? What was going on in this place? Well, there's a number of things going on. One of them, I think, is actually a test of faith. It's a test of faith for the people of Israel. Back in those days, as I've alluded to this morning while we were working in PNG, in the context of our college, we had to print notes for our students, multiple copies of notes. We had a lot of students. And I had one big photocopier that did all the work, a Toshiba. Uh, are we allowed to mention brand names? Uh, a photocopier. And the photocopier was fantastic as long as it was working. It went through multiple hundreds of copies every day at certain times of the year, thousands of copies in a day. The problem that we had was that there was no Toshiba... Oops, there we go. There were no, <laughs> there were no photocopier service centres within a couple of thousand kilometres. The closest one was actually in Cairns. Not that convenient. That's where we bought the machine. And so when we first got the machine, Phil, who came up from Cairns, said, is there anybody here on the faculty who would be interested in learning how to fix photocopiers? And because when someone's washing machine broke down, David was called, or when this broke down, I was called often, uh, they said, you do it. So I did. And so Phil taught me how to fix photocopiers. Now, photocopiers look complicated, but they're not really that complicated. Not nowadays, anyway. And from time to time, roughly once a term, uh, sometimes more often depending on the time of the year, that photocopier would need to be overhauled completely to service. And here's the fun I had. I would put out three or four tables in a big quadrangle area. I would strip that copier. Internally, everything came out. So your pressure rollers, your, all the rollers, the heat rollers, all that stuff, your picker fingers, everything would come out. And I'd spread everything out. I'd have to clean everything. It looked like a mess. And then someone from the faculty would walk past and say, oh no, is it ever going to work again? And I would say, of course it's going to work again. Here's my mantra in life, you always look confident, even if you're not. <laughs> because you can bluff 98% of the people in the world if you look confident. There were times where I thought, Gee, where does that part go again? <laughs> I've got three screws finished, where did they go? You know, that sort of thing. But we always got it going, eventually even if I had to ring Phil in Cairns and get some advice. But here's the point. That whole team put their faith in my capacity to fix that machine. 
And here in Joshua chapter 5, Israel had to do the same. Would the Israelites trust God completely? Would they allow themselves to be made vulnerable, totally dependent on his protection? Would they trust God to keep their enemies at bay while they were resting during this period? There's a test of faith. But here's something else that I was thinking about a lot through this week, something perhaps um, that we've never made much of in terms of teaching this passage. Much is made of the fact that Israel was made vulnerable during this time, Less is made of the fact that God created an environment where they could be vulnerable. Now, just stick with this thought for a second. This is quite helpful. Uh, God had actually prepared a context where his people could exercise their faith. You see, those Canaanites and Amorites were so mortified by what had happened, they were so totally overwhelmed, they didn't even want to go near the Israelites. There was no way they were going to take advantage of these people because they thought, what is going on? Let's just get back away from these people. We don't want to go near them. So God had actually prepared an environment where his people could exercise their faith. Now, here's an interesting application. I believe that it's actually true from my experience and theologically true to say that that's how God operates today too. Because when we step out in faith... When we sense that God is saying to us, I want you to take up some kind of challenge or opportunity or trust me in some way, God doesn't do it in a way that he says, off you go, you're on your own. He's actually gone before us and prepared the way for us. Does that make sense? I believe that's true. God is not a God who is capricious in the way that he says, you're on your own, figure it out for yourself. Not to say there will be some challenges that we might have to face. Not to say that stepping out in faith is going to be easy. But always when we step out in faith, God is present, God is there, God is at work in that place. God creates a safe space for us to exercise our faith. And so I can say to you with great confidence that if God is suggesting to you or saying to you, I want you to take a step of faith, a step of faith in trusting me, a step of faith in allowing me to be Lord of your life, a step of faith in trying something new in ministry, a step of faith in speaking to someone about something, a step of faith, whatever shape or form it might be, we can do it knowing that God's prepared the way. Because God's never absent in those places. That's great news and great encouragement. You're not looking like it's great news or great encouragement, but it is. It's exciting to know that as we step out in faith, God creates a safe place for us. Let's talk about circumcision for a second, though. Why, why circumcision in this context? Why did, God, uh, why did God ask the people to do this? Well, we know from the Old Testament, of course, that at the time of Abraham, uh, circumcision was instituted by God for his people as a sign of the covenant. This relationship, this agreement between God and his people. And throughout the ages, even through to today, Jews uh, still practice circumcision, circumcision as an outward sign of being members of the covenant community. Now, there's all sorts of arguments about why God might have uh, chosen circumcision. There's some arguments clinicians would even make to this day suggesting there are some health benefits, perhaps in the context of a primitive community, there may have been. But they were always secondary to something that God was doing, secondary to what God intended for this to represent to his people, secondary even, actually, to what happened here at Gilgal. 
You see, the physical was only ever to be a shadow of a greater reality. The physical circumcision that God instituted was only ever to point to something deeper. And it's picked up by Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 28-29, where he says, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward or physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now, here's something really significant. Under the new covenant established by Christ, by Jesus, physical circumcision became redundant as a sign of the covenant relationship with God. And what is curious, what I find rather interesting and not often acknowledged is that this was actually what God intended from the very beginning. From the time, even time that predated Joshua. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16, for instance, part of a lovely affirming passage for the people of Israel, God actually says, circumcise your hearts and don't be a stiff-necked people any longer. And Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6, God said, the Lord will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul and live. From the start, God's intention was that it's our hearts that should represent or reflect our covenant with him, our relationship with him. And back in the days of Joshua, of course, a person would recognise a Jew by the physical mark of circumcision, which of course was an outward sign. But today we reflect God's grace in other ways. There are many passages, I've just picked uh, Romans chapter 12 as an example, where Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a change in our hearts that God is looking for now. We're recognised as followers of Christ, not by something physical, by something spiritual instead. Let's move on in the passage to the next verse, verse 9, a rather interesting verse. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so the place has been called Gilgal to this day. What is that all about? What is the reproach of Egypt that had been rolled away? Well, some of you have had the opportunity of meeting uh, my son Josh. He's the one with the really short hair. <laughs> he, has, he has grown it a bit since then. <laughs> when he was young, when he was a little boy, he loved to wrestle. You know, he'd come and sit beside me on the chair and say, Oh, Dad, can we wrestle? Can we wrestle? You know, we'd be in the, swimming in the ocean. Oh, let's have a wrestle. And when he was little, it was good. And just as, as an aside here for a second, I actually believe that it's really important for fathers to wrestle with their sons. And I'm not making light of this, this is serious. Because it actually teaches a boy to limit his strength. It teaches him how to exercise his strength within limits. And I actually believe, and this is totally off track uh, where we're at this morning, I believe it's important for dads to wrestle or engage physically in an appropriate way with their daughters as well as they're growing up because it teaches her to be comfortable physically in the presence of a man. It's good for her in her marriage later on. But Josh loved to wrestle 
and he would want to wrestle. We played a game called Push Off the Bed, where I'd be sitting on my bed having a bit of a snooze or something, and he'd jump on and say, get off! And whoever got pushed off would lose. Well, he always lost. <laughs> Until he turned around about 15, and then it was a little bit more difficult, and so I decided at that stage, maybe we shouldn't wrestle because I didn't want to hurt him. And then when he got to about 18, and he was just a little bit shorter than me, he always wanted to be taller than me, and I used to say to him, I hope he doesn't watch the video, <laughs> I used to say to him, buddy, you might be taller, but you'll never be smarter. <laughs> well, maybe that's not true either. But when he got to 18 and he started to bulk up, I thought, gee, I can't wrestle him anymore because if I beat him now, it'll, it'll damage his self-esteem, you know? <laughs> So I said, Let's, no, Josh, I don't want to hurt you. No, I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to make you feel bad. I don't want to humiliate you in front of everyone else. So let's not wrestle. Now, I'm telling you that story because I think in some ways the reproach of Egypt is a little bit like that. It worked, I think, a little bit like this. The Egyptians, quite literally, they had their butts whipped there at the sea, didn't they? They were chasing those Israelites through. The sea closed in on them. They were demolished. They were totally wiped out. I have, a, I have a picture in my mind of the remaining Egyptians on the other side of the sea as the Israelites disappeared off into the distance, yelling out to them, you're just lucky that sea closed over because we were about to get you. I think that's probably fanciful. What I do think though, and there's some evidence from the text to suggest this, is that there was a kind of a sense, a kind of a, a reproach that the Egyptians, a mantra if you like, the Egyptians had... Uh, what would be the word we would use, had infected the Israelites with perhaps, that, you know, God's only taken you out there to kill you. He's only taken you out into the desert. There's nothing out there for you. Your God's just leading you out there for no reason. And the evidence that I'd put for, for uh, making this case is there's a couple of occasions, one in Exodus chapter 30, uh, 32 verse 12, which tells us that as the Israelites were journeying into the desert, they disobeyed God. We know that was typical of them. And God, in his anger, said, I'm, I'm over these stiff-necked people. And Moses said, whoa, 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 God, don't, don't do anything because if, if you wipe them out, then the Egyptians will continue to say, see, he was just leading them out there for nothing. He was just leading them out there to destroy them. And in Numbers chapter 14, verse 13, uh, a similar bind was faced there when the people were disobedient. God was angry with them. And again, Moses said words to the effect that if you do that, all of the nations will say, you are too weak to set out to do what you said you were going to do. This reproach that perhaps started in Egypt, words that the Egyptians spoke, words of condemnation, words of discouragement. But here now, as we come to Joshua chapter 5, as the people have arrived in the promised lands. The Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. You know what those Egyptians were saying back then? It was all rubbish, see? I did what I said I was going to do. They might have cried out to you, they might have been discouraging, they might have said that I can't do it, but see, look what's happened. Here you are, you're in the land. The reproach has gone those misrepresented intentions that the Egyptians had, uh, had come out with in the same way that I misrepresented my intentions with my son have been rolled away. 
What's kind of interesting to me though is, and I've been listening to a little bit of radio this week as I was driving around, uh, is that the, the, how could we say this, metaphorical Egyptians are still at work in our community, still uh, sending, still issuing, still speaking reproach. You know, God doesn't exist. God's just one of many gods. Strong in our consciousness this week, you know, the church is bad at protecting vulnerable people. All the church is interested in money, I heard that one this week. Christians are really just trying to maintain power and influence, I heard that one this week too. The reproach of the world, the reproach that the world throws at us. And let me just say to you, really up front and very clearly, a Christian who has lost confidence in the capacity that God has to act. If you don't believe that God can do what he says, you are vulnerable to these things. Because you start to think, oh, maybe there's some truth in it. And if you hear a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. The reproach of the world, the voices of reproach. So there we have in Gilgal that first great ordinance of Israel revisited in those first few verses. The second one, just quickly, uh, is reflected for us here from verse 10 through to verse 12. Let's have a look at that uh, for a moment. The second great ordinance that God gave his people, circumcision and the Passover. On the evening of the 14th day of the month while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. It's a beautiful illustration of God's providential care, isn't it? You know that he took his people into that land at harvest time, just when the harvest was being reaped, there was a, an abundance of food for them. What great timing God has. You know, there's been times where things have happened, where decisions have had to be made, where circumstances have conspired, and I've scratched my head, and not because I've had head lice, <laughs> but because I'm thinking, what is God doing here at this time? How come now, God? And then it's only with hindsight you look back and say, wow, I didn't know what God knew. God's timing is always perfect. The way that he ordains the days for those who trust and love him is always perfect. And as the passage here says for us, in terms of provision, God provided for them with the manna and now he did so in what we might consider, a, he provided for them in what we might consider a, a less miraculous means. In Philippians chapter 4, Verse 19, a passage that will be very familiar to you. Uh, Paul said, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That's a really significant little verse. Because that verse doesn't say how God will do it, it just says that he will do it according to his riches. I know uh, many of you know the story. It's a, it's a story that's been corrupted in different ways, so we'll corrupt it again this morning. You know, there's a guy who was standing on the roof in a flood you heard this story? He's crying out, God save me, rescue me, the floodwaters are rising. And, and as I say, I'm going to corrupt the story. The first thing that happened was this big log went floating past us and a guy on the log said, come on buddy, jump on the log, you'll be safe. No, 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 God's going to rescue me. It's all right. And so the log disappeared. Next thing along, along comes the SES in one of their little tinnies. 
and pulled up and they said, jump in the tinny, mate. Uh, you're, we're here to rescue. No, 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 God's going to rescue me. Well, the floodwaters keep on rising. And in the end, a helicopter flies overhead, drops down the rope ladder and says, jump on the rope ladder, my friend. We're going to rescue you. No, it's all right. God's going to rescue me. And so the helicopter disappears. And then the house gets washed away. The guy dies. He turns up at heaven. We're making some assumptions about him, but let's just say... <laughs> Let's just say, he turns up, he says to God, why didn't you rescue me? And God says, I tried three times. (laughs) See, here we have an illustration from the scripture of God providing for the ways, uh, for the needs of his people through the miraculous, through the manner, and through the very normal, the very ordinary. And God can do that. Because as Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, my God will supply your needs according to his riches. It doesn't say how. It says according to his riches. He can do it any way he likes. And so back in the day when we were at Bible college and I've shared this story before, we prayed and said, Lord, would you provide for us? We don't have much money. And along came work. It would have been easier if they could have just given me the money, but that's not how it worked. I went and worked, but God provided the work and just at the right time. My God will provide according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And then at the end of the chapter, let's move here to... Uh, to verse 13 uh, through to the end chapter uh, chapter 5 verse 15 probably if we were organizing bible chapters we would include this in the next part of the story but we'll look at it this morning in anticipation of next week this rather interesting encounter this burning bush experience that joshua had you see the kind of parallels between moses and joshua joshua has his own burning bush experience. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? That's a good question. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servants? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And so Joshua did. Well, we haven't got time to unpack this in any great detail, but just a couple of observations worth making. What stands out for me in this encounter is that the angel states unequivocally that he is neither for nor against Israel or their enemies for that matter. That's probably not what Joshua might have hoped when he was about to go into battle against a strong enemy. It would have been nice, wouldn't it, for that angel to say, I'm here for you, buddy. Just tell me what you want. I've got a whole legion that I can call. But it speaks to me, if we want to make some application from this, of the danger that we're all inclined to flirt with from time to time of co-opting God into our program of co-opting God to uh, be on our side. And if you don't think this happens, just look at history because throughout history various armies have gone forth crusading because God is on our side, blurring the lines between the political and the religious. You know, the Lord's on our side. This reminds us that God is not co-opted into our programs or our projects. Our crusades are not God's crusades. And it's a strange message that's delivered too. You would expect a message of encouragement or a strategy or a promise. But it's actually a call to be in the presence of God. And I think this is actually an excellent place for us to finish today. 
faced as we are with the clamouring noise of, of a world that's turned its back on God, faced as we are with reproach that comes from the voices of many, the noise of those who have turned their backs on God in a world that wantonly rejects the message of the gospel. What is the highest calling of the people of God? What is the highest thing we can do? To bemoan, lament the loss of power and influence that we have in the community. Let's rally the troops. Let's build up some enthusiasm. Let's start some programs. Let's write petitions. Let's da-da-da, whatever it is, fill the gaps. What's the highest we can do? The highest calling is to draw closer to God, to experience his holiness, to be in his presence and allow our responses to whatever challenges we face be driven by his spirit at work in us. And there I think is both a warning and an encouragement because so often as we're facing challenging times and we will face challenging times is to try and get busy to take it back the way it was and revisit the past and uh, reinvent ourselves or whatever and forget that God calls us to a holy place to be in his presence, to rest in him, to trust in him, to have faith in the one who has shown himself to be faithful throughout history. There's the message of Joshua chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we again want to thank you for your word. Timeless truths that we find uh, buried deep in history, but history that's been preserved for us, preserved because of your providential care for us so that we might learn. We are conscious, Lord, that this was not written originally for us. We are conscious, Lord, that it's a message to your people throughout the ages but it's also a message that we might take and apply, mindful that your spirit will help us as we do take it and apply it. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we find you reflected in these words too, of your goodness to us, of your faithfulness to us, and the call that you have for your church today to, uh, to draw to God, to draw into a place of reverence, of holy awe, of the best kind of fear, of acknowledging you as the one who is worthy, the one who is glorious, the one who is powerful and ultimately the one who has the victory. Uh, Lord, that is our hope, that is uh, our firm belief as we've seen you act in the past, as you continue to act in the future. Our trust is in you and in you alone. Guide us, we pray, as your people into a deeper understanding of who you are so that we might respond to the challenges of life and the world around us in a manner befitting those who know Christ as their Saviour. We pray this in your name. Amen.